you just need a narrative that is going to serve you. So one of the narratives of my life was I cannot cope with anxiety. I need drugs to survive. My new narrative today is adversity doesn't stop me. It fuels my ability to thrive. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey folks, it is RJ here and we are joined by Brian Penny on this week's show of Ultra Habits. Now, Brian is an author, speaker, PhD candidate, university lecturer, and life change strategist. Now, that's a big word, but I'm going to unpack what he actually does. So whilst all this is super impressive, his life used to be very different. On October 8, 2013, he experienced his first day clean after 15 years of chronic heroin addiction. He says that addiction nearly killed him. As a heroin addict, it's always Russian roulette. But on that fateful day in October, he received a gift. Call it what you will, perspective shift, an awakening, or just luck. He doesn't think that's important. What matters is that it completely changed the course of his life. He says it seemed like an instant. The world seemed to glow. Colors were more colorful. Sounds were more cheerful. There was this coming of moment that seemed to occur for him. Things that were once hollow were now full of depth, and he felt more alive than ever before. Captivated by this sudden change, he started to question why he felt so alive. And he didn't see it at first, but it hit him. It had tortured him his entire life. The voices in his head, the stories, the narrative that he spun, the ones that drove his anxiety and in turn his addiction, they were gone. For as long as he can remember, they had consumed him. His mind raced. He thought what he needed to do all the time, but he could never do it. The voices were silent finally, and the anxiety was gone. And the race was over, and his new life had begun. With a newfound love of learning, he embraced a second chance at life and went to university to study the complexities of human behavior. He wanted to understand why. He had so many questions. What is the relationship between overthinking and anxiety? What is the perspective shift? Why did he feel so alive? Why do people suffer? And how could he help others end and escape their suffering? And this set him off on an amazing journey. There were several bumps Along the way, in 2016, his competitive nature led him aside. He was obsessed with the university, the anxiety and overthinking. The things that drove his addiction in the heroin space started to creep in in the university and academic space. That light, joyful feeling that he was gifted left. Life had lost its color, its energy, its soul. And what shocked him the most was what he didn't even notice. How did he not see it? How did he lose the most profound thing that had ever happened without even realizing it? And floored by this sudden realization, he doubled down on his mental and emotional well-being and developed what he called the program for life. 
And this program includes a vast range of tools and strategies that focus on self-awareness, decision-making, mindset change strategies, as well as tactics to help people to boost their energy, find their purpose, and recognize negative thought patterns and successfully navigate relationships in their lives. Now, he currently teaches at the University of College Dublin. He is in the neuroscience space and the conversation we have is remarkable. We are talking about gutter addiction in the absolute horrors, rock bottom. And we are talking about the transformation that occurs when one decides to put the drug or the drink down. We focus heavily on narrative, the voice between our head. And we talk about how that shifted for both of us and how we recognized this is key to high performance. Fantastic conversation. We dive into philosophy, neuroscience, addiction. It's a conversation with a lot of range and you are going to enjoy this conversation. I have no doubt about that. Please do let us know what you think. Rate this podcast. Get on the website. If you want to learn more about Brian's work, his stuff will be in the show notes for you to pursue and find out more about him. But guys, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Brian. Really, really hope that you enjoy this show. Peace out, folks. I'm out of here. Well, Brian, welcome to the Ultra Habits podcast. We have had some technical difficulty, but we have made it here, man. I am super, super stoked to have you on the show today. Very excited to be here, RJ. We've had a, a brief conversation once or twice. I just love the name of the, of the podcast as well, Ultra Habits. And it's uh, it, it's what I'm about. Balance is key, but you've got to be ultra in areas and balanced in others. So super keen for this conversation. Yeah, uh, you know, is you can appreciate the power of habits. And sometimes we orientate those habits towards the good. And sometimes we orientate these and those habits to the not so good. So, you know, many people will look at you super educated now. You know, you're you're doing speaking gigs, you're teaching at university and like, wow, Ryan is super brainiac and he's got his shit together, but there's a, a real backstory there, right? So, you know, in 2013, you experienced October 8th, 2013, you experienced your first day of being clean after 15 years of chronic heroin addiction. I want you to unpack your heroin addiction and what actually that was like for you and what do you feel uh you know took you towards that addictive uh path yeah it's it's very it's very simple for me rj in retrospect i did had no idea at the time what was driving and today i know that i didn't even have i had a heroin addiction but that was not my problem my problem was trauma and anxiety I was using the heroin as a, as a way to medicate myself because of anxiety that that came from trauma and it was really I I, 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 I trauma as an infant I had an operation without a general anesthetic we won't go into the details of the medical practice at the time but pre-1985 
and um, they didn't they didn't know that infants experience pain like normal adult uh, like normal adults so i basically went under the knife as an infant only a couple of weeks old without a general anesthetic and as we know now um even uh, the fetus experiences pain and I don't have memories of the operation, but the body remembers. There's a great book, The Body Keeps the Score. Like it stays within the body. And I created associations with that. I had um I, I had a lot of complications from that surgery. I literally cried for the first 18 months of my life through complications of that surgery. So my first 18 months on this planet was pain. And it was associating the external world with that pain. So it was only it was no no surprise that I went on to seek drugs really to escape that those challenges you know that's extraordinary to me that the medical community even you know i mean the 80s isn't you know nine you know we're not talking about like five thousand years ago like it's amazing that they wouldn't have the insight to understand that a baby would experience pain right crazy crazy they, so what they gave me was they gave me um a, a muscle relaxant to stop me squirming on the on the on the table and it was based on weak neurological evidence from the 1940s so it was only when some woman realized her baby went under the night had open heart surgery without a general anesthetic there was this outcry and all of the medical practice were like oh my god what have we been doing all of this time it was one of those watershed moments when they just realized they made a mistake and i was unfortunately one of one of, the, one of those kids that went under the knife and it sort of for me then as well like i i've loving parents but there was a lot of alcoholism in my family as well so my memories as a kid like the, that bodily anxiety that i had that trauma that i had so that manifested itself as i was just such a worrisome kid i was always worried about my parents dying drink driving i was worried about other members of my family dying and i was just always up in my head so if you're always up in your head and you're worried and you're anxious what do you want to do you want to get out of your head and that's why we talk about alcohol and drugs to get out of your head so at the age of 17 i start dabbling with drugs at 13 14 and at 17 years of age i used heroin for the first time and i found that anesthetic i'd been looking for all of my life i found that anesthetic and that's sort of set me on a pathway to spend many many years uh chronically addicted to heroin do you think your choice of drug be it heroin was a result of the, like, do you think there is a reason that heroin did it for you versus let's say alcohol or anything else? Like what was the, what was the reason in your view beyond heroin? Do you think it was just basically your, your kind of composition or do you think that, have you reflected on that? I have reflected on that. And the trauma that I had, it was very much bodily trauma. So I was obviously, as, a, as an infant, I used to associate the, like the different sensations in my body with the external world. And my anxiety was really like uh, grounded around my chest and my head, pressures in my head. And like, I was afraid of my heartbeat. I couldn't listen to my heartbeat until I was, until a few years ago. And um, I still rubbed the scar on my belly as an infant. Even when I talk about these experiences, I was afraid of my breath and I was afraid me pulse and I was afraid of my feelings really so I was just looking for something that numbed the pain so I dabbled with ecstasy I dabbled with cocaine I I took I drank alcohol I'd done all of these drugs 
But heroin was just this gave me this numbing effect. It made me comfortably numb, as a, a, that song by Pink Floyd very, uh, very nicely puts it. Just it made me comfortably numb, and it switched off all of those sensations and gave me a sense of peace. And I do really think it was a driving force in terms of the specific uh, problem I was trying to address. In recovery, we talk about the rock bottom. You know, some of the more religious members talk about God's grace. Some uh, more secular way of talking about it might be a moment of clarity. You wrote that you had a perspective shift, uh, an awakening, or maybe it was simply dumb luck that got you to that point where you decided to change. Can you explain to me from, I guess, your personal process with addiction, but also from the perspective of your expertise as to why or how some people come to this rock bottom like it's a phenomenon that can't be explained have you put any thought into why some of us are luckily enough to come to this place i haven't i've put a lot of work and a lot of thought into the perspective shift and the science underpinning the perspective shift i've never put much thought in terms of the rock bottom I, I think that's maybe where I come across it was simply dumb luck. I think the luck for me in terms of the shift that I had was a result in that I got lucky with the fact that I hit my rock bottom. For me, like they often call it the dark night of the souls where there is just so much pressure and so much suffering that some people just have this shift in perspective. I love Eckhart Tolle. He talks about his dark night of the souls in terms of, I cannot, he said, I cannot live with myself anymore. He said that in his book, The Power of Now. And he had this realization, I cannot live with myself. If there's an I and a self, does that mean there's two people? Maybe only one of them is real. And that was a big one for me. I get guilt, I have guilt bumps now just thinking about that. And I think it is sort of this this conceptual sense of self that we create that like I think addiction is like an ego in itself. I created an ego that protected my addiction at all costs. If anyone in recovery in when I was in addiction came to me to speak to me, they said it to me. I took out my machine gun of verbal diarrhea and I would shoot them with it and they would walk away exhausted. And I think we just create this sort of identity that we have in terms of protecting ourselves with that. And maybe it's the case that some people cannot have a crack in that shell. I, I think for me, I had a night where I suffered. I was suffering emotional and psychological pain for a long, long time. And then I suffered a lot of physical pain when I had a seizure and I, I bit my tongue nearly in half. And I think that just sort of gave, cracked the ego, cracked that shell of the ego, that sense of self, and just created an opening. I think it was Rumi's lion, uh, through the wound is the opening to see see another light. And it's it, that's not very expertise, science-based stuff, but it sort of taps into that idea of, of the sense of self and the stories that we tell ourselves. And I think that could be a way that it is that we do it. Yeah. In recovery, you know, particularly in the big book, it talks about the individual has this moment of clarity the ego is momentarily cracked but the clamors of the world come back and most people's ego reasserts itself and i think you hit the nail right on the head that under scenarios of extreme pressure almost at that point of where some people decide to make the ultimate sacrifice of suicide because they can't, the other, you know, the process of transformation may not be clear or an option. But under that level of pressure, 
the ego cracks. And I think it's very difficult to artificially create that process for people. I think that if you could, if one could create a simulated process where the individual is under extreme amount of pressure, then maybe there could be that opportunity for more people to to recover. But it's just something that unfortunately needs to be, uh, it needs to come from within, right? Like it, it's, it can't really be imparted. It is, they call it the gift of desperation, right? Like it's, it's so true. And that, that I'm putting my science hat on again here. And one of the problems that we have in psychology and in neuroscience and sort of studying these things, like we do a lot of work with animal studies where we, we do, we, and it's terrible to an extent, like I don't like the studies that are done with animals because some of them are quite cruel. They try to be as ethical as they can, but they cannot replicate their studies on animals because it's, it's their language. It's the stories we tell ourselves, it's the beliefs that we have. So there's no replication of those psychological processes. So, the only way I can see it being done is in terms of putting people under extreme amounts of pain, extreme amounts of pressure. And obviously ethics wouldn't allow us to do that. So I don't think there's any scientific way of creating that. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a terrible shame that we can't access that in, in an experimental scientific way because it, it certainly looks like the key to something huge for people. So many people go through that process, go through that dark, that darkness to see the light. And it's what, what happens is... Is uh, it's quite unknown. Mm. Yeah, I've often thought about going to rehabs, uh, even creating a rehab with a different flavor around creating more, uh, designing more structured pressure to continue that process of ego deflation uh, in a manufactured environment, manufactured adversity to kind of get them whilst they're there in the rehab, they're captive and break them down further. Because I think that's one thing the military does well in, in the context. Not, not, not to say that people that go into military are broken, but they create a context which drives transformation. Yeah, to- totally agree. And and I do think there's that breaking that has to happen. Like it was only like you have to fall to stand back up, to be able to stand back up and move forward. And I talk about the night, the perspective shift I had, it was only in the surrender and stopping the fight that there was that chink in the armor and there was a place for me to start again. And there is that element that you have to be broken down. And I would believe like if we put military precision in this, like let's say we imagine the scenario, a thought experiment where we put military precision in that and we tried to break people down in all different ways. I would say everyone has their breaking point. And I would imagine some people don't hit their own rock bottom because they just haven't that haven't didn't get that specific flavor of what rock bottom is for them. And I think the ones that do just probably get a little bit lucky. And I think that's why I allude to dumb luck. Mm. You said that when you got sober, and this is interesting, and I'm I'm really keen for your perspective on this, particularly as to why the opposite is true. So you said when you got sober, you know, colors were more colorful, sounds were more cheerful. There was a depth and aliveness in life. And to refer to Eckhart Tolle, he talks about that as well. Uh, Once he had that perspective shift and he kind of sat on a bench for like a year, everything had this aliveness. And I think he asserts that there was kind of this decimation of the ego. But to kind of reverse engineer this, why do you think when 
an individual is caught up in active addiction and not just necessarily when they're using, I mean, just during regular day life, as you refer to, why do you think life has no flavor? And I, I really do. And this is the big part of what I've tried to research, the answers that I've been looking for. And I remember on my first day clean, that was the day when I woke up in a detox center and the world just seemed different, wonderfully different. It was like nature was breathing on me. Colors were more colorful. The birds were singing. It was just, it was an immense feeling, an immense sensory feeling that I had in my body. And I remember sort of reflecting on this and why, why do I feel so good? Why did I suffer? How can I share this with other people? And that's sort of what drove me on to find these answers in spirituality and psychology and neuroscience. And I've been on that journey for the past eight and a half years. And there was a moment when I was in treatment. So I was introduced to mindfulness for the first time when I was in a, I went to detox then I went to a treatment center and I was introduced to mindfulness. And we were doing a guided meditation. And this was a couple of weeks after me perspective shift. And they were, the guy was talking, thoughts will come in, thoughts will go out. And I had this sudden realization that my mind is really quiet. There was just this calm and space and this peace of mind. And I remembered and all of I suddenly remembered my mind was so busy. Uh, it was so busy that I couldn't even see it was so busy because it was just everywhere. And I began thinking about the narrative of my life. What, what was the busyness? What was it about? And a big element of that was I'm not man enough. I can't cope with life. You're no good. You're a piece of crap. All of these different narratives. And I've gone on to study this stuff, like what is the impact of a narrative on your voice? And this has really been the big, the big uh, find for me. I've been searching for this. And there's a theory in science, it's called relational frame theory. And it looks at the relational nature of language and the psychological functions that go with it. And in a nutshell, it shows that language is a vehicle for emotion. And I think the poet Hafiz captures it beautifully. The words we speak become the house we live in. And this has been experimentally demonstrated that when the, whatever word the, whatever words you speak, the functions, the psychological functions, including the emotions, travel through that and you feel it. So if you're telling yourself you're a piece of crap, you're no good, you'll never amount to anything, you're a failure, you're ugly or whatever that is, you're feeling it as well. And I think whatever happened to me, I had that shift in perspective that was no longer there. The shift that I had, the mind went quiet, the chink in the armor, the veil was lifted and that left those good feelings. I hadn't got this internal narrative hammering me, pummeling me, telling me that I'm a piece of crap anymore. And that left that space to feel perceptually sensory experiences. And I do think that was the difference where as other people that are stuck in addiction, they're just, they're just stuck in that frame of mind and they can't find that, they can't find that gap to start seeing seeing the world a little bit differently. I am fascinated with the topic of narrative. Oh, me too. Um, oh, it's next level. So yeah. is there any studies that you're aware of around people that have never heard language or and, and they might be deaf? Like I've always wondered if a human did not have any language what happens then in terms of their narrative? Like, what does that actually look like? What's the self-talk, if any? Like, what happens? Yeah, right. So there's something very uniquely human in terms of language. And it seems like the most simplest thing in the world, but it makes it very, very unique. And it's, it creates the language burst that we have. And it's like the dark side of language. So in a very simple way, think of this idea. So a stool, a chair, and a seat. 
they are three things that we sit on. And if we are talking to a child growing up and you say, that's a stool, we sit on a stool. That's a seat. We sit on a seat. A stool is like a seat. Then if you, so it's A is the same as B. And then B is the same as C. Now, if you say to the kid, a seat is the same as a chair. So that means A is the same as B and B is the same as C. Humans automatically derive through without being directly told that C is the same as A. And through looking at lots of different studies, animals cannot do this. They cannot we create meaning. We create meaning through that and the functions transfer through that as well. Now, let's say I said to you, an alleyway is a scary and dark place. Don't go down there. And then you'll say a laneway is a scary place. Don't go down that way either. And then you hear a laneway is like an alleyway. Or they say a church is like an alleyway. Whoa, I'm afraid of that too. And you've never even been in that place in your life. So we have this unique way of relating these different concepts in language. And that is really a dark side of language that could, that can be really, really problematic. And animals cannot do this. They don't have the language, but they can't relate to objects in this way. And it's something that's really, really unique and sets us apart from non-linguistic animals. And it's it's no surprise as well. I think you'd be interested in this, RJ, as well. Like when you think about when like children are inherently happy, especially young children, and it's only when they get a sense of self and they start creating language and self-talk and it's language bores that they start wondering about what people will think of them and what they'll look like and all these other emotions. These like social emotions, social constructed emotions kick in. Like they're afraid of spiders, they're afraid of snakes and stuff. But these things like watch out for the road, watch out for this. These are the new things that come in and language and the narration of these hold us together. And then whatever emotions we we give that to the kids as well. Where we start to we, we start to tell them what's scary, what's not, what to be afraid of. And that's where it all it all starts from there, you know. Man, I'm with you. Like if I reflect on my addiction you know like when i wasn't using or drinking my narrative was like you know it was heavy it was heavy it weighted me down and it was non-stop relentless and if i reflecting back like that's why i see the question like what if i had the ability to just to turn that off Right. Like would. And I mate, I recognize it with my children, like my daughter and my son, who's a, a few years older. But now he's getting and he's I've watched the narrative form and I try to curate his narrative through experience. Like it, I expose him to certain types of difficulty, adversity. The other day we went and climbed a, uh, a rock face and I pushed him up it and, you know, like he was scared. He's like, I can't do it. And I take every opportunity to form his narrative through experience, not me telling him it, but me helping him develop the narrative through his own experience. But one of the things I noticed with my daughter, who's like 18 months, because she doesn't yet have a grasp of language she also is much more observant. She can see an airplane. She can hear an airplane way before any of us can. It, and I know that's because she doesn't have chatter. It's extraordinary. 
Oh man, and she's tuned in with yes. curiosity. There's a line in Anthony DeMello's book that just blew me away and it sort of talks about what you're saying there. And it was this uh, a father was walking with his kid, I think a five-year-old kid, and the kid was like, oh wow, dad, what's that, what's that? It was a little sparrow flying through the sky and the dad didn't see it and he says, oh, that's a sparrow, son, and the son was amazed by a sparrow. The next following week, he's walking through again. He says to his son, look, look, it's a sparrow. And he says, oh, no, sparrow, I know them. They're all, I know what a sparrow is. And he didn't even look. So he stereotyped the sparrow. It could have been a different sparrow. Could have been, because we're not all the same. We stereotype. We have a label. We have a word for that thing. And we stop looking because we think we know. Eckhart talks about that as well. Right? He talks about once we put a word to something, it loses its aliveness. Because we, we, we associate the, uh, that the, the bird is an, uh, it's, it's, it's alive. It's, it's a being, right? It has a, a, a quality that when we start to put language to, to define it, it loses its aliveness. And as we travel through life, I can see because we've just dealing with so many different things that there's a real danger there and it's a fascinating conversation it, it, it really is and i don't want to go off i don't want to go off on a tangent here but when you think about racism and you think about all these different issues they're linguistic issues they're stereotyping we think we know what the thing is but we're no longer looking at the human and i, I think about how you're giving your kids those experiences like if you sort of had one child grown up and they're told to value money cash money value that that's what's important in life that's the narrative they're given but then you have another kid and there's a connection of family that's that's what you need to have in your life well you're giving them them that language so all of a sudden you tell one kid you could get a load of gold and they'll go looking for a load of gold and they probably sacrifice their family to get that gold because that's what meaning has been given for, to their lives whereas the other kid that learns that connection of family and those intrinsic things are so more important they don't want gold or money to to, to in, in place of that so it depends on the value and the teaching that you have and I think that's why parenting is so important really to guide the kids with the narrative that they have and ultimately the emotions of how they experience the world Oof. yep and you know what I'll, I'll tell you this so I I have a, 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 a I guess he's a mentor he's a coach he's a he's a psychotherapist but he's also a teacher of Vedanta and he's uh, an alcoholic as well and he he unfolds a, a certain flavor of, of teaching to me, which is very existentially driven. It reduces language. So it's all about experiential learning, right? So it's not about uh, lessons through kind of um, uh, language or like you do this or you do that. It's more about you do, you, you, you do things and the doing changes the the narrative versus versus the other way around, right? And I think you get what I'm saying. Big time, big. That there's a study, right? There's, there's a groundbreaking study that really speaks to me on this. So in, in behavioral psychology circles, we call this rule governed behavior. And for me, let's say the rule for me was do heroin; it will make you feel better. When I done heroin for the first time, damn yes, it made me feel better, right? But I have a rule. Now I have a linguistic rule. Heroin makes you feel better. Heroin takes the pain away. But as the years went by, heroin was causing anxiety. It was making me worse. But I followed my rule rigidly. 
it makes me feel better. And that's what alcoholics and that's what addicts do. This is taking my pain away. I need this drug to feel better. Now, there's a great study exploring this element, not in terms of drug use, but in terms of these rules that we follow. And they simply got one group of participants, right? And they were told to press a button. So just press that button. And he got another group of participants. He says, we're giving you a rule. You have to press this button. You have to keep pressing this button. That's the rule. And what they did was they heated up the button and made it really, really hot. Now, the participants that just when it got hot and were told press the button, when it got hot, they took their fingers away. They reacted to the environment, to their experiences. But the ones that had a rule and were given a rule, they kept on pressing the button. And born, some of them were born in their hands because they were told that they had to keep pressing the button. So it's the narrative, that rule that you are given. And that really speaks to what you're saying there. Like. Mm. So we'll move along. I think we can do a whole show on the power of narrative. <laughs> easily, easily. <laughs> oh, man. So let's let's continue to unpack your journey, uh, Brian. So you, like what took you to neuroscience and how did you ultimately get a PhD, man? Um, wow, I tell you, and I, I used to call it, um, I switched addictions, you could say. Like I used to joke about that, you know. And I think when you get clean, like I think some people say you do, don't want to get addicted to anything else. And obviously you don't want to switch one addiction for another addiction. But for me, a, a really important marker in my life was to jump into something that gave me some kind of, made me feel alive. I jumped into spirituality. I jumped into learning. I jumped into psychology. And to be quite honest, uh, RJ, you, you'll relate to this as well. I'm sure some of your listeners will as well. I thought the whole world was about addiction. It was about my experiences and what I experienced and the whole world wanted it. It was going to be about that. And when I done a degree in psychology, I was sort of surprised that there wasn't even a module on addiction. It was nothing about that. It was statistics. It was different things. But I was really lit up by the world. I was really lit up by learning. And I caught the learning bug. The, I, I caught the feeling better bug, like what exercising well, thinking well, meditating, spiritual health, physical health, all of these different things. And psychology just really grabbed me. I wanted to know about the human mind. I wanted to be able to help other people through my experiences. And it was like a treadmill. It was like a hedonic treadmill. I got on a very positive one. So I've changed. I, I, and we're back to language. I don't say I switched addictions anymore. I think it's a nicer way of saying I transformed my desires from something negative to something positive. And it really took me on a journey. I suppose it was, um, I, I was very successful. My, my obsessive nature made me very successful within that as well. I got really good grades. I got, and, and here's the thing for people to understand as well. Some people think because I have a PhD, I'm crazy smart. I'm, I'm not overly intelligent. I'm not stupid, but I, I, am I have perseverance. I have grit. I worked hard. I was strategic. And I really stuck to the course. And on the back of that, I got really good grades. I, I got top of the class and I got, um, I applied for a scholarship in, a, it's one of the best universities in Ireland. And I got a scholarship to do my PhD. And it just happened to be in the Institute of Neuroscience. And I'll tell you a beautiful story, actually, RJ, you like this one, how I really got drawn to neuroscience. So when I was in detox, it was two days before my first day clean. A doctor came into the detox facility to do a study on the human brain. They were exploring the role of methadone on the human brain. And I had taught through my experience in when I bit my tongue in half and that, that shift in perspective I had when I when I felt broken, 
I thought I was actually broken. I thought I was brain damaged. And I remember being in the detox and telling this woman, Johanna, Dr. Johanna Ivers, I think I, I think I said, I think I'm brain damaged. But she actually says, you're really smart. You're actually quite smart because I was guessing the questions. And I says, well, maybe I'm not brain damaged. Maybe I could go to college. And she since took me on three years later to lecture in the Institute of Neuroscience, the woman that came into the, into the detox facility. Beautiful circular moment. And she actually introduced me to a book by uh, Dr. Rick Hansen called Buddha's Brain. And she told me to read that book while I was in detox. And I read that book when I got out. That gave me the little uh, inclination to follow the brain science. And I, I, I love brain science. I love psychology. But I do think it's it's I learned more through my lived experience and through talking to other people. So it's really combining the, the, the academic knowledge with the lived experience and that combination that goes in there. So that's really where it all came from. When you reflect on what you've learned in your academic journey and you overlay that with your experience as an addict, are there any kind of aha moments when you reflect back on your addiction and you're like, ah, oh, you're making connections because of the education, like around, like, are you kind of using your former self ever as a case study or like a, a lab rat? Definitely, definitely. And do you know what? I live, I live for aha moments. I, I live for getting aha moments and I live for keep providing people with those aha moments. And one thing I try to do, I really try, like you don't get people in neuroscience exploring the narrative of the mind and the ego and the sense of self because it's very experimental. And I often try to think about it in those terms. And I think at the end of the day, everything we do, say, think, is a neuron sparking in our brains. It's a neuron firing, something happens, it, it, it helps us to speak and it helps us to understand. So we always have to think of these things at a biological level, like it's an electrochemical signal sparking that. So I'm always interested in exploring like, the spiritual side of that, the, the, the ego side of that, the psychological side of that. And I, I can't think of it off the top of my head, I can't think of any delightful moments that were sort of sparked within that. But I always start to think of the journey of, of the mind, of how it happens. And I start to think, I try to visualize like something happened on the outside how that looks in the brain, what happens, what's those triggering effects. And then if you if you have a calmness about you, if, you, if you're able to take that pause, like Viktor Frankl says, the space between the stimulus and the response. So what you are actually doing in that moment, you're reducing that the, the amygdala, that fear center of the brain. It sends a signal up to the cognitive center of your brain and it's like you're cooling that system down. It's like you're pouring water on that system before cortisol floods the body and triggers all of these other emotions like anger, depression, guilt, jealousy, and all of these other things. So I'm always thinking about it in terms of experiences that I had in the past and how the body and psychological impact of that happens on me now in comparison to that. So it's always interesting looking at the the, the, the dichotomy of, of both responses that I would have had then and that I have now. It's interesting you brought up Victor Frankl because I was actually going to talk about meaning. You know, like I look at your story, I look at my story, and I look at like even Alcoholics Anonymous, which I'm a member of, they call it spirituality. You know, certain people, I would probably call it now optimization. Like we all have different language again, but what it really is, is we're when I think what gets and really enables a lot of people like us to be successfully sober is we find a way to create meaning and we have to replace the previous meaning 
which wasn't serving us with something that does serve us. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, we talk about a higher power. You can call it whatever you want. It's simply language. Some people call it God. In my view, again, it's another form of meaning. You can replace God to mean just say meaning, right? And I think we're meaning-making machines. And I guess a lot of that is around how we see ourselves, narrative, identity. What's the role of identity in this for you? Like, what's the role in a transformation that someone might be wanting to undertake? And it may not even be moving from, you know, addiction to sobriety. It might just be for our listeners that are looking to shift the needle, like as a neuroscientist, but also someone that's lived in active addiction, how do you view the role of identity in change? Yeah, it's really, really important. Uh, identity is a really strange one as well, because at the end of the day, if you have an identity, you're you're kind of in trouble at the same time. You need an identity, but unless you're living in Nepal or you're living in a Zen Buddhist monastery, um, you're living in the world and you need an identity. But it's your attachment to that identity causes problems. I am not attached to my identity as a, as a doctor or of neuroscience. And if somebody attacks my intellectual abilities, it doesn't bother me because I haven't got that attachment. It's not who I see myself as in, in that sense. Now, um, I, 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 I'm very passionate about being a speaker. So if somebody attacked that, I might actually, uh, I mean, my identity as a speaker might be a little bit challenged with that. It, it's never actually happened to me, um, t- thankfully. But I, I'd, I'd love that challenge to come. But I do think we need... An identity can be a dangerous point, and that's what that's one thing. If you're attached to your identity, you've got to be aware of that. But then, as I said, we don't live in in the world of Buddhism. We're living in, if most people listen to this, be living in cities. They're living in the world that we live in, and you need an identity of who you are going to be, how you represent yourself in the world. And I think with that identity, um, we need to have a purpose. We need to have a mission. So for me, my purpose, mission, meaning, whatever you want to say, it's like with a relentless belief that we are what we think. And I think could be what we say about ourselves. So we're relentless people that we are. We think my mission is to show people that change is possible, demonstrating actionable steps through a lived experience. And that's part of my identity. That's who I am. I like um, giving people those light bulb moments, connecting the dots through multiple disciplines and, and, and the experience that they have. And maybe breaking down people's identity if they, they identify themselves in a problematic way, help them to see the world in a different way. I think identity is an interesting one because we have to, particularly when we're performance orientated, I find people that have a strong sense of identity attached to their performance, it yields solid results. On the flip side, you then need to temper that with agility. And that's where mindfulness, spirituality, all that comes in. So in one way, you have this high performance orientation where you have a very strong view of how you see yourself and you will live up to that view. But the skill then comes in the agility. For example, I'm reading a a book uh, about Roger Federer because I'm interested in, in his longevity. His ability to lose was very interesting in how he reacted to losing versus what I see 
most champions do. He was able to move through a, a, a critical loss quicker and easier than most people. But he had a view of himself as a champion. There was no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And you see that in his expression and everything he does. And you've really triggered me to think about something triggered in a good way to think uh, to t- to think uh, of something there that's really important to me. So I talk about this a lot, and it's the values that we hold. So I think my sense of identity, let's say, not not a set identity as in as in a conceptual sense of self. It's more an identity in terms of the values that I hold. And the reason you said agility there, and that's a key piece. But for me, I've, I've talked about my values for a long, long time now. And boldness will be a core value of mine. I reach out, I laugh at rejection. If I get, if someone says no, it doesn't phase me. I take a risk again. I'm always putting myself out there. But then I've, I'd have other values like accountability. I do what I say I'm going to do. And I walk my talk. Honesty, courage, all of these different things, curiosity, playfulness. And I've really thought deeply about my core values and what I want, who I want to be in the world. They're like my North Star to direct me in a certain in a certain way. They guide me to where I want to be. And then there's more tangible values in terms of that as well. My physical health, my mental health, and some of them are goal oriented as well. But when COVID kicked in, here's an interesting one, RJ. What I found was that another value came to the very top of the four that was more important than all my other values because my framework pre-COVID may not have served me during and post-COVID. So I needed to be flexible. I needed to pivot. I needed to adapt. Like my PhD was ruined in the midst of COVID. I had a book launch ruined in the midst of COVID, cancelled a big TV launch, loads of things. COVID just wiped it all out. So I needed to be agile. I needed to be flexible within that. So I think agility is one of the most important things. Like if you're too rigid and you're too structured, you're in trouble. You need to pivot with your identity. And I think that's crucial. I think that's nailed on with Federer. I'm going to read that book. I'll get the name off you later. <laughs> you know, like I, I appreciate excellence in craft. Like I'm not a tennis person, but I'm interested in his longevity. I think there's two things there. I think you nailed it where the focus should probably be the value system and the medium can change. For instance, um, I had a surfer on the show who got his leg bit on his journey to becoming a, a really badass pro. He can't surf, right? Now, a lot of people would have crumbled, maybe gone into a full-on depression, which he initially did, to be fair, But because he had a clear understanding of his values, he was able to pivot and find a new medium. So I think what you're saying, if I were to paraphrase, is to focus on the values and the medium may change. And therefore, you're not susceptible to perfectionism because that's the whole thing, right? Like that's the opposite to a growth mindset, right? Like when you're so rigid that you will only do something if you're the best at it, therefore, and once you lose that, being the best at something, people fall apart. They fall apart. Yeah, it's and it, it, it brings me back. It, it sort of circles back to what we were talking about earlier on. Like we all have stories. We all have narratives. You just need a narrative that is going to serve you. So one of the narratives of my life was I cannot cope with anxiety. I need drugs to survive. My new narrative today is adversity doesn't stop me. It fuels my ability to thrive. We don't just... 
want fuel. We need fuel in order, or we need adversity in order to grow and we need that fuel. So in every situation, how can you learn? How can you grow from that situation? And some of the biggest challenges are often, most often, the biggest opportunities to grow. So there's no better space than developing a growth mindset through your greatest, through your greatest challenges. I'm with you, Brian. So we're going to start to land this plane, but one of the things I'd like to ask you is if someone is on the journey or going to commence the journey, and it may not be wholesale transformation in terms of uh, you know alcohol, drug addiction, but I think we all have process addictions to a greater or less, lesser extent. If someone's on a path of wanting to move through change, moving away from addictions, how could they start to anchor themselves in good habits? What are good habits for someone that is actually looking to change and just the practical stuff and maybe the more philosophical stuff from your view? Yeah, I, I think the most crucial thing that it's it's got it, like it's a habit. The essence of it is it's a habit. That's something you're going to habitually do long term. So straight away, throw patience in there as a core value. You're gonna need to be patient because good things don't come quick. They really don't. It's it's about long term, uh, long term action that's gonna provide these massive gains. And with that as well, to think long term, you've got to start small. Like it's it's really, really important because motivation is, is a really is a dangerous thing. If you if you rely on motivation and you're you're waking up and you're trying to climb Mount Everest every day, someday you're gonna wake up and you're saying, I don't want to climb Mount Everest Everest and your motivation will be gone. So baby steps, start small and try to stay consistent. Consistency is your friend. That is the holy grail. I often say to people, if I have three three words of advice for you, it's consistency, consistency, consistency. And people sort of get scared by that like how can I do it every single day what about weekends and all these kinds of things and obviously like you can enjoy your weekends or you can enjoy days off but you've got to be consistent as much as you can and with that you've got to start small and take those baby steps now what I talk about a lot and it's keeping it very simple and very operational is the habit loop like you have the A, B and the C for every habit there's a, an, an, a trigger a behaviour and a consequence. And this is why alcohol and, and drugs can become so habitual. You feel emotional pain, you have a drink or a drug, that's the behavior, it takes away the pain, that's the reward, and that can form a habit loop very quickly. And what most people do when they're trying to create habits, they look at the actual behavior. I want to get healthy, I want to create a good habit, I need to focus on running. Well, do you know what, focus on, on, the, on the trigger. What's the triggers that's gonna help you to run? Because sometimes this great plan for a run, you just forget about it, and then three months time, you're like, oh, what happened to my great plan to go running every morning? But if you focus on leaving your runners out when you wake up, hiding your shoes, do these little triggers and then you have external triggers and internal triggers as well. So try to set yourself up so you're you're, you're going to be motivated in terms of that as well, because I think that sets up the motivation for you to implement those habits into your life. So make it easy, start small. If it's going for a run, start with a kilometer so you're not waking up and cursing yourself or having to go on this run. And then over time, it will just become habitual. Now, I think we touched on, I, I would imagine you've talked about that, the habit loop on, on, on this podcast uh, before, RJ. So what, what I would like to talk about was in terms of the neuroscience around habit, habit formation as well, because I think that's really important. And it's a way of sort of conceptualizing this as well. 
So if you are trying to, like as people often say, uh, how long does it take to forge a habit? And there's different things, 21 days, 50 days, 200 days. There's all kinds of things. But if you're trying to create a juggling habit, well, if somebody juggles 10 hours a day versus someone juggling 10 minutes a day, days don't even come into it. It's the amount of juggling time. And to bring that down to an even more molecular level, a more micro level, it's the amount of neural connections that are being forged, the neural pathways in your brain. And think about it this way. It's a lovely metaphor for this. So you imagine you're walking through a field and you get to this field and there's a pathway through the field, which is a bad habit. It's eating unhealthy. It's waking up late and it's not getting any exercise. And every day you walk up and you come to this field and it's very easy to walk through that pathway. And that's like the brain. It's an energy hungry machine. And through neuroplasticity, it's taken this 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 uh, this shape and created that neural pathway through the field. And it wants to get down that path all of the time to take the easy road. It's why instant gratification is so easy to do. It wants to take that easy path. Now, if you try to create a new habit and you change your environment, you do all the, you change the triggers and you change the cues and you wake up in the morning, the brain's going to be like, hell no, I want to get down the easy path. I don't want to get down that hard path and have to forge a new pathway through the field. And it like the field has long spindly grass. You have to push through it, trudge down the grass, push your way through this little this field. And let's say one day you get through the field. You wake up the next day, you get to the field again. That easy path is the easier way to go. Yet you walk down the new path yesterday, but it's only really a little bit of a path. You haven't really broken the grass up that much, much. You still have to walk down that path again. But when you wake up every day and you keep on walking down that new path and you say no to the old path, all of a sudden you're going to start forging a new pathway through that field. And the great part about that is that the other pathway then grows over through synaptic pruning in the brain. The brain doesn't need that new, the old pathway anymore. And what the brain says through neuroplasticity, if you keep on doing the same thing again and again and again, the brain says, Effect this, we need to create specific neural structure for this new pathway to save energy going forward. And that is neuroplasticity happening in action. And the great news here is that bad habits are hard to break. Yes, but so are good ones. And once you force those good habits and you get through that amount of time, it doesn't become trudgery anymore. It doesn't become hard anymore. It just becomes what you do. Brilliant. There is so much in that. And I would say that once you've proved through illustrative examples to yourself that the invisible path that you start to create a path on has worked, you'll have more trust and faith in the future on creating new paths because you'll start to create those illustrative examples to yourself that, okay, I what was initially a trudge <clears throat> on this new path eventually became a beautiful yellow brick road to the wonderful land of Oz, well, I'm going to do that again. And you develop that deep trust that other people can't necessarily see because they don't have that level of trust or faith yet because they haven't developed their own process, right? Uh, I love that, man. It's a, like That's that self-belief right there. And it's it's developing the ability. You learn how to learn. You learn that you can do that. You're building a wall of evidence that I've done it before. That's the essence of growth mindset right there. Like, I can't dance. I really can't dance. But I won't say that. I'll say I can't dance yet. 
Now, I don't really want to dance, but if I, if I, if my life depends on it, I know I can learn and I need to forge those neural pathways. I probably won't be the best dancer of all time. That's the reality of it. There's, there's limitations on that, but I know I can learn how to dance based on that past experience. Yeah, it comes down to your values, right? Like you can't optimize yourself and everything, but it's that knowing that if I need to, I can. Uh, Tom Bilyeu talks about that as well. Like, um, but anyways, we'll we'll close there. I've got a, um, I do a, a boot camp with our staff. So they're all, uh, they're, they're going to be lined up in front of the office soon. It's, it's, it's dark outside. They're out there and yeah, I kick their ass out there. But um, before we go, Brian, tell us where to find you, man. Yeah, so you can find everywhere. It's on my website. I'm actually in the middle of developing a new website, but the, it's the same uh, website. It's www.brianpenny.com. P, Brian Penny, all one word, B-R-I-A-N-P-E-N-N-I-E. All the books, blogs, videos, all the different uh, bits and bobs are all in there. You'll find everything centralized there. But uh, thanks for having me, RJ. I got some questions here that I've never talked about before. We could have gone on for hours with that narrative stuff. We'll do. I I think we'll do a we'll do a Brian's corner when I uh, when I get guests that there's a lot of rapport and there's a lot to talk about. We end up creating a corner for you, and we might just have to do that, brother. Sounds good, man. Thanks so much. Have a super day. You too, brother. See you later. Bye bye.